Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now in our museum is the new exhibition, Audubon's Aviary, part one of the complete flock, which is spectacular as well. And we also are continuing with our World War II and New York City exhibition. I hope you'll all take the opportunity to visit these exhibitions if you haven't already, and take advantage of all the other exciting offerings here, including our inaugural Bernard and Irwin Schwartz classic film series, which is free with your admission during our pay-as-you-wish Friday nights. We are also grateful to Bank of America for its generous support of our free Friday night programming. And before I go on to our program tonight and our membership, our great membership values, I just want to let you know if you don't have this card already, it's right out um, to your left if you go out the back door. But we have it all over at the visitor services desks. We have a concert series on relating to World War II. And I spoke with the group. It's Jay Lanehart. If you haven't already heard of him, he's a great jazz musician. All his family are musicians. He's bringing the family, friends. I think in our the second concert we have, he's bringing Bucky Pizzarelli. There's some great people coming, so follow this. Um, Friday night they're coming, and they're going to do, um, it's been a long, long time, Songs of Longing and Joy from World War II. And I spoke with them yesterday the three, the mother, the two daughters, the daughter-in-law, they're all costumed as the Andrew sisters. They're going to do three-part harmony, and they told me that they're practicing all the songs, and they've been crying through the songs. So the White Cliffs of Dover, I mean, they're going to do a great show. So if you're here Friday night, please come. Also, I just want to mention the Bernard Narwin Schwartz classic film series. If you don't have this brochure. It's the second season that we're doing it. They've been great. We get great speakers. And coming up next Friday, we're doing The Gangs All here. Um, if you haven't seen that film, it's a Busby Berkeley film. It is a dance from the beginning to end, even without dancing, just the, the film itself. And we have two fabulous speakers. So join us for that. Um, I also want to ask you, before we go on, how many people are members here tonight? So we've got lots of members. I just want to encourage those of you who aren't members to join. We have great, great discounts on our public programs, and it also makes a great gift. Um, so please speak to our colleagues before you leave tonight. So for tonight's program, The Patriarch Part Two, Joe and Jack Kennedy, this is part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I want to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. They are here with us tonight, right here. Let's give them a hand. Our programs, our, our lectures, our film series, they're, they're just, they're incredible. And they're just wonderful people. So it's a real joy. Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz. I'd, yes, well, let's give them another applause. Thank you so much. 
I also want to recognize and thank our trustees, our trustee Lon Jacobs, who's with us tonight, and all our wonderful Chairman's Council members for all their hard work and support as well. Let's give them a hand. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer sessions. We will invite audience members to approach two standing mics in the aisles. And we ask that you do this so the speaker on stage and everyone in the audience can hear you. We are also recording it. And unless you speak into the mic, it won't, it won't be recorded. Following the program, please join us for the book signing with um, David Nassau, whose book will be available for purchase in the museum store. So we are so pleased to welcome back David Nassau, the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. Professor of History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He is the author of Andrew Carnegie, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the winner of the New York Historical Society Prize in American History. And the chief, the life of William Randolph Hearst, a winner of the Bancroft Bancroft Prize and a finalist for the National Book Cir Critics Circle Award for Biography. In his last program with us, he focused on Joseph Kennedy during World War II. We invited him to return tonight to talk, to talk again about his latest book, The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy, this time on Joe and Jack Kennedy. So before we begin, I just want to ask if you have a cell phone or an electronic device that you please turn it off. And now, please welcome David Nassau. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, I want to begin by not looking into these lights. Um, looking down. I'll try to look at you without looking into the lights. It is important that historians not only tell the story of what happened, but tell the story of what didn't happen. History and historians cannot trace a straight line from the past to the present. Historians cannot represent history as fate. What happened is not inevitable. Uh, the 19th century German historians and philosophers were wrong. There is no master plan. Contingency plays a role. Events play a role. Tonight, I want to talk about a man who was an insider and an outsider, about Joseph P. Kennedy, who, for me, was the perfect subject, a way to write about the events of the 20th century from World War I to the Roaring Twenties to Hollywood to Washington through Depression, New Deal, the run-up to World War II, the Cold War, the New Frontier. I want to write about a man who made himself thoroughly unwanted in Washington, who turned himself from one of the most trusted, respected men in the country to an outsider because his views 
were way, way out of the mainstream. And yet to understand not only the events of World War II, which I talked about last time, but the events of the Cold War, we have to pay attention to those who are outside the mainstream. When we look at the opponents, those like Kennedy, who did not want to enter World War II, who did not want us to aid the British or to go to war with the Germans, we understand the difficulties that Roosevelt faced. We understand more about politics. We understand again that the road to war was not a straight and narrow one-way path. In 1940, Joseph P. Kennedy returns from London, where he had been the ambassador of the United States to the court of St. James. He returns in disgrace, in disgrace. And then he makes things worse. He gives an interview with the Boston Globe in which he tells the world that it's all lost. It's all over. There's no conceivable way that the British are going to turn back the Germans. Eventually, eventually, if not in 1940, in 1941, or 1942, the Germans will invade and the British Empire will cease to be. Doesn't make very many happy people happy, certainly not the British, certainly not Roosevelt, who believes that for America to survive, it is better that the British fight the Germans than that they take over the entire continent and move against American interests. Kennedy then makes things worse for himself. He goes out to the West Coast to visit his son, who was at Stanford. Nobody quite knows what he was doing. He claimed to be taking business courses, but he wasn't registered as a, as a student. He was having a grand time um, and reading, as he always did, but reading not what his professors told him to read, but what he wanted to read. He went to visit his son. He had been away in Europe, in England, and on his return, he visited all the children, and also to visit William Randolph Hearst, a good friend and a colleague, and a fellow isolationist. And then he was invited to the Warner Brothers studio by the Warner Brothers, and he was supposed to explain to them how difficult it was gonna be to keep up exports to Europe during the war and what he thought was gonna happen. But instead, and I talked about this a little bit last time, he launched into a diatribe against the Jews of Hollywood. And he claimed that the Jews of Hollywood, two-thirds of his audience, every studio head, every major producer was there, two-thirds of them were Jewish. He went into this mad diatribe, and he talked for hours and hours about how Jewish Americans were going to force a war with Hitler, that the Americans win, lose, or draw would never forgive the Jews for pushing them into this war, that the Jews had to at once stop making anti-Hitler, anti-Nazi films, like Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, which had just come out and was doing solid box office. 
the press was not allowed, but how Kennedy ever thought that what he said wasn't going to get back to Washington, to New York. Um, he was a smart man, but he got it all wrong. And once again, he dug himself deeper and deeper and deeper into a trench he was never going to get out of. Things got worse the next year when Roosevelt brought to Congress his Lend-Lease proposal. Roosevelt understood that the British could not survive without American aid. And the British had no money to pay for American aid. So the neutrality laws had to be reconfigured and we had to begin to give aid, lend. Roosevelt used in this brilliant analogy uh, the story of a fire hose. If your neighbor's house is on fire and your neighbor comes over and says, I need your fire hose, you don't sell it. You lend it, right? Because if his house continues to go on fire, your house is threatened. So you lend him the fire hose, and when he's finished, he gives it back to you. This was lend-lease. Everybody waited to see which way Kennedy was going to go. The Roosevelt people thought that he would support lend-lease. The American firsters, Lindbergh, Hoover, all the rest, believed that Kennedy would come out against lend-lease. Kennedy did neither. He waffled, and he ended up being on the outs with the isolationists, the American firsters, and the interventionists. It was time to retreat from public life, and he did so. Fortunately, he had Hyannisport, and he had Palm Beach, and he had his golf, and he had his buddies, and he had his children who he loved and wanted to spend time with. In December of 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and a day later, the Germans declare war on the United States. Why Hitler do, did that, historians are still trying to figure out. It was one of the stupidest moves that any statesman, well, he wasn't a statesman, any national leader has ever made. So the United States is now, in the second week of December at war, on two continents, with two powers. Italians are going to come in quickly. Kennedy writes a telegram immediately to Roosevelt. He says, I'm yours to command. Any job you've got for me. He spends the next two years being offered insignificant jobs and turning them down. Why? Because Roosevelt doesn't trust him. He doesn't want him in Washington. After two years, he decides, this is it. I'm going to wait out the war. He sits out the war scared to death like thousands, millions of American parents because he's got one boy, Joe Jr., flying bombers in England. He has another boy, Jack, commanding a PT boat. Jack shouldn't have been allowed to, to walk down the street. He had a stomach that was always causing him immense pain. He had a back that was impossible. As Bobby, his brother would later put it, Jack never spent a day of his life in which he wasn't in excruciating pain. 
And he had Addison's disease, which had yet to be diagnosed. But Jack was off. And Kick decided Kathleen, she wasn't going to stay behind. She couldn't join the army and fight like her boys, but she could enlist in the Red Cross and go back to London. Bobby told his father that if the war lasted long enough, he wasn't going to go to Harvard. He was going to enlist. And as Kennedy wrote to a good friend, he said, if this war goes on too long, I'm going to lock Teddy in a closet before he too goes away. In August, on August 13th, 1944, a sunny, beautiful day in Hyannisport, Joe had gone up to take a nap after lunch, as he always did. Rose and the children were on the front porch listening to music and talking. And two limousines showed up in the circular driveway. And two chaplains got out and knocked on the door, and Rose went, and she didn't immediately think anything was wrong because chaplains all, I mean, army chaplains and uh, members of the clergy often visited the house. And she went to see him, and they asked for Joe, and Rose said, well, he's taking a nap. And they said, well, could you wake him? And she said, what, what's it about? And the chaplain said, let's wait, and we'll talk to you together. Um, Joe Jr. had died. His, it was after D-Day. The war was won. And he flew a mission over the channel. He never got to the channel. And he was incinerated. Joe Sr. would never be the same. He retreated into a mourning from which he never, ever entirely recovered. He would say to his friends that, you know, he he wished he had Rose's faith because Rose went to Mass and Rose communed with her God and Rose talked to the priests and Rose moved on. But Joseph P. Kennedy could not. In the fall of 1945, JFK begins his campaign for the congressional seat that everyone thought Joe Jr. would occupy. No one had ever thought Jack was going to go into politics because he was too ill. He was too carefree. It was almost as if he didn't expect to live long, so, you know, why not do what he wanted? He was a dreadful dresser. He was sloppy. He was careless. He never cleaned up his room. He never worked very hard at anything except projects he himself chose. But he decides now that he's going to run for Congress. And he decides it not simply because he wants to please his father and he knows his father wants him to do it, but because he decides this is what he wants to do. His father had brought up each of the children to perform some sort of public service. He had said to them over and over again, I've made millions of dollars and created trust funds for all of you so you don't have to work. And Jack decided he was going to run for Congress. He had to start early um, because nobody knew him in Boston for the you know, good reason that he had never lived in Boston. He had lived in, you know, grown up in Brookline, 
moved to Bronxville in Westchester, spent some time in Cambridge, but he had never been a resident of uh, Boston. He was a Kennedy, so it didn't much matter. Uh, they quickly established residence. He moved into a hotel, began his campaign. His father did everything he could to help him out, spent lots of money, gave him lots of advice, uh, was delighted that the next generation, as he had always known, he had always known that he wasn't going to make the move. The Kennedys weren't going to jump into the establishment in two or three generations. He was the third generation. It would need one more generation. And Jack was now beginning that move. And yet, Joe said over and over again to all his friends and his family, he said, I'm retiring. You're never going to hear from me again. I've got nothing to say. It's my children's turn. But he couldn't keep his mouth shut. He couldn't stay out of the limelight. He couldn't stay, didn't want to stay off the front pages. Not because he ever thought he was going to be president or ever be elected to anything. He knew better than that. But because he thought he knew where the country was going and it wasn't going in the direction he wanted it to go. In March of 1946, while his son is preparing to run for Congress in a district in Boston that is frighteningly anti-communist, anti-Russian, uh, that wants nothing that is pro-Cold War as the Cold War develops. Joseph P. Kennedy returns to public with an article in Life magazine. Just weeks after Winston Churchill announces that an iron curtain has descended across Europe and Truman and his administration applaud and begin to go to Congress to ask for money to contain the Soviet menace. What does Joseph P. Kennedy say? He is absolutely consistent with his pre-war sentiments. He argues that it is necessary to negotiate with the Russians, with the Soviets, not rattle sabers. Russia, he says, is just another nation state, not the epicenter of an international communist conspiracy. The U.S., he says, has to get out of Europe. It has to stop minding other people's business. It has to retreat to a fortress America. It has to build up a strong defense so the Russians can never come across the ocean and get us. But that American money has to be spent on American infrastructure, not in fighting a useless war, a useless Cold War, and threatening to start World War III. We have, he said, to stop, quote, minding other people's business. His recommendations, right, just a couple weeks after Churchill had declared that this Iron Curtain had descended, were so out of the mainstream that his friend Harry Luce had an editorial in the front of Life magazine, rebutting what Kennedy said in the back. 
November of 1946, Jack Kennedy is elected to Congress. Despite what his father had said, which no one in his district agreed with, except maybe some of the people in Cambridge, in that part of Cambridge, which was part of the district. With his son safely elected, again, to a staunchly anti-communist democratic district, Joe Kennedy could speak his mind with impunity. And he did. March 12, 1947, one day after Truman says, recommends to Congress that millions and millions of American dollars be spent to send aid to Greece and Turkey to fight the Soviet menace, JPK, Joseph P. Kennedy, using his friend Arthur Kroc, who was the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times and also on the Kennedy payroll, um, as an aside, I have waited and other friends have waited for the New York Times you know, to say something. I think it astonishing that I discovered that Arthur Kroc, the Times bureau chief in Washington, is on the Kennedy payroll. And all you got to do is look at all of Kroc's columns to see that. It should come as no surprise. Um, but that's one of the aspects of this book that's gone unmentioned. Um, Joseph P. Kennedy has a false interview with Arthur Kroc. Arthur Kroc does this incredible thing. He, he says, I just happen to be visiting. First, Kennedy says, this is what I want to say. Arthur Kroc says, okay, makes some changes in what Kennedy wants to say. Then Kroc publishes an article and says, I just happened to be in Palm Beach. You know, all sorts of interesting people are there because there's now long distance telephone service so that people in Washington and New York can go to Palm Beach, you know, for the summer. And I was at a conversation, a dinner table, and all sorts of people were talking about Truman's plans. And the one who made the most sense was Joseph P. Kennedy, and here's what he said. And then he took verbatim Kennedy's statement that Kroc had edited and spruced up for him. And Joseph P. Kennedy, front page of the New York Times, says, quote, American capital is needed at home. If we're going to give money to Greece and Turkey, it's going to raise taxes. Nobody's going to profit. It's far away. It's not part of the defense perimeter around this country. High taxes and high government spending is going to destroy the economy, which is still shaky after the depression and the war. Quote, the wise policy is to keep the American way of life as strong as our resources can make it and permit communism to have its trial outside the United outside the Soviet Union, if that shall be the fate or will of certain peoples. In most of these countries, a few years will demonstrate the inability of communism to achieve its promises. It wasn't a few years, it was a few decades, but what he was essentially saying is Soviet Union is a major power, you know, leave it alone. There's nothing we can do except impoverish the American economy. His speech, again, was widely 
criticized or, or what he had to say in this interview all over the place. Nobody agreed except pacifist, leftist, A.J. Musty. Um, in May, when the House voted on Truman's plans, the plans that Kennedy so opposed, Jack Kennedy voted in the affirmative. Father and son were in sharp and public disagreement. And it goes on. It goes on. This, this tension between the two of them and the tension within Kennedy's soul. He, he thinks he has to speak out. Nobody else is speaking out. Certainly his son is not going to speak out against the Cold War. But he knows that every time he opens his mouth, he's endangering his son's political future. And he knows that it is as dangerous to be an appeaser and an isolationist during the Cold War as it was in the 30s and the early 40s. But he can't keep his mouth shut. He feels that he has to say something because nobody else is saying it. There has developed a consensus in Washington, Republicans, Democrats, North, South, East, and West, that the Soviets have to be contained no matter how much it costs. And by 1950, when his son is elected for a third term, the escalation of the Cold War has gone steadily forward. The defense budgets have risen. We're spending millions of dollars on a Marshall Plan. The Berlin crisis of 1948 almost brings war, or at least we think. The United States has organized NATO. Truman has said he's going to send American boys to Germany. And the understanding is they're going to be a tripwire right? The Russians won't invade Germany because the Americans are there, and if they do invade Germany then, or do some, make some menacing move towards Berlin, then it's World War III. And then to make matters worse, in the summer of 1950, the Korean War breaks out, and American boys are sent back to Asia to fight a war. By the fall, the decision had been made to chase the North Koreans, above the 38th parallel, even though the Chinese communists had said, don't do it. Don't do it. If you go into North Korea, if you come any closer to our border, we're sending our troops in. Joseph P. Kennedy is invited to give a major speech at the University of Virginia Law School. There weren't a lot of places that invite him to speak. Uh, the University of Virginia Law School Student Legal Forum invites him to speak. Can anybody guess who the president of the University of Virginia Student Legal Forum is? Robert Kennedy. Right. So he invites Daddy to come speak. Uh, and Daddy thinks, well, he's gonna, he has a speech prepared about lawyers and politics and he has the whole speech written, and it's, you know, pretty good speech. Totally bland, doesn't say anything, and he can't do it. 
It would have been the, the right thing to do for his son, uh, for both sons. But he can't do it because he's determined, determined to speak out, to start what he calls the great debate. So he seizes the occasion. He writes a fiery speech. He has croc alert the press, croc and his, you know, press agent friends, make sure that the speech is going to hit the front pages of every newspaper the next morning, which it does. And he goes near ballistic. He states and restates and reemphasizes his opposition to the Truman Plan, aid to Turkey and Greece, to the Marshall Plan assistance to Europe, to NATO, to recent congressional appropriations of millions and millions of dollars for military assistance overseas. And he says, what is this money? It's billions of dollars now. Billions of dollars withdrawn from the American economy, right? Sent overseas. He says, what is this accomplished? Does anybody feel any safer? No, he says. The Truman policy was, quote, suicidal. It was, quote, politically and morally bankrupt. He called for a complete about face, which, borrowing the language of the American firsters and the language he had used in World War II, he entitles, we need an American foreign policy for Americans. He publicly challenges every central tenet of the Cold War. And he's alone in doing so. The Republicans, except for Taft and a couple of others who know that it's political dynamite to oppose Truman on the Cold War, everybody is, is shut up. There's a consensus that's developed around Truman's plans to fight the Cold War. Again, Kennedy says the Soviets were not going to take over the world. They didn't have the strength. They didn't have the economy to take over Europe. They could barely feed their own people. They could barely take care of Eastern Europe, which they had taken charge of by coup, by military regime. He says the United States wasn't rich enough to police the world. That Moscow controlled communist parties and regimes in Eastern Europe, but those weren't going to last. That nationalism was going to overthrow communism and that the Russians couldn't hold down the nationalism and the, the need for freedom of the Eastern European peoples forever. He said that it was time to negotiate. High time to negotiate. Quote, a first step is to get out of Korea. Indeed, to get out of every point in Asia we do not plan realistically to hold in our own defense. He included Vietnam in that. We should stop aiding the French. Quote, the next step is to apply the same principle in Europe. Communism was neither monolithic nor eternal. Soviet influence 
might spread further, but only for the short term. Communist parties outside the Soviet Union, quote, will soon develop splinter organizations that will destroy the singleness that today characterizes Russian communism. Tito in Yugoslavia, Kennedy says, is already pulling away from Stalin. So will Mao. Kennedy recognized, and he said in this speech, that he was going to be criticized for being an appeaser. But, quote, if it is wise in our interest not to make commitments that endanger our security, and this is appeasement, then I am for appeasement. The Cold War, he said, quote, was not in accord with our historic traditions. We have never wanted a part of other people's scrapes. What business is, is it of ours to support French colonial policy in Indochina or to achieve Mr. Syngman Rhee's concepts of democracy in Korea? We can do well to mind our business and interfere only where somebody threatens our business and our homes. The suggestions I make would conserve American lives for American ends not waste them in the freezing hills of Korea or on the battle-scarred plains of Western Europe. Kennedy's speech accomplished what he wanted. Herbert Hoover gave a speech soon afterwards, agreeing with him, not going quite as far. Senator Robert Taft was awakened from his slumber, and he gave a major speech in the Senate opposing Truman. The major question now in the Congress was, could Truman send American troops, this has never been done before, send American troops to be stationed in Berlin, to be stationed in Germany, when there was no war? Could he do that without declaring war? Could he do it without asking Congress? Could he do it on his own? Truman said, yeah, I'm commander-in-chief, I can move troops anywhere I want. There was a huge debate that was now embarked on, not simply because of Kennedy, but because of Kennedy and Hoover, Herbert Hoover, not J. Edgar, uh, and Senator Taft. Huge debate takes place. Okay, where is the congressman from Boston? One of the congressmen from Boston. He's now totally at sea. It's 1950. He's already thinking about running for the Senate, and who knows where he's going to go from there. He can't agree with his father, but if he disagrees too strongly with his father, they're all going to look stupid. What's he going to do? Is he going to vote against Truman, his own party, and Truman's plans? Is he going to ally himself with Senator Taft, the leader of the Republicans? Uh, he doesn't know what to do. But his father makes a wonderful suggestion, leave. Go to Europe on a fact-finding trip. So while the debate goes on in Congress, Jack Kennedy, with his father's money, goes on his own fact-finding trip. And he says, he's got the perfect answer, he says, I'm going to find out if the Europeans are going to raise troops to fight the Cold War. And if they're not going to station their own troops on the border between Soviet-controlled Europe 
and free Europe, then we shouldn't send any Americans over there. While he's away, his father keeps on. He gives a speech at the Harmony Club in New York. He says, Asia for the Asiatics is an intelligible theme, as plain to Pakistan as to Peiping. The overthrow of communism in China, talking, this is in the middle of the Korea War is being fought. The overthrow of communism in China is rightly a crusade for the Chinese, but not the responsibility of an alien race. Kennedy returns, Jack, from his fact-finding mission and goes right down the middle, as his father had over Lend-Lease, but this time Jack gets away with it. Jack comes up with this cockamamie formula. He says, Truman is asking for four divisions of troops to send to Germany. Let's let him send those troops, but if he wants to send any more, the Europeans have to put up two divisions for every division the Americans send. Uh, Truman gets what he wants. His plan passes. By now, Jack Kennedy and Joseph P. Kennedy have decided that the boy, the young man, the young congressman, who is not a terribly good congressman, never has been, doesn't care much about, you know, Congress doesn't want to be one of how many congressmen are there? Who knows how many? I should know this. What? Lots of them, okay. He doesn't want to be just one of them. He doesn't want to be a junior congressman from Massachusetts. He doesn't like going to meetings. He doesn't like any of this. And his forte is foreign policy, and you don't do much of that, you know, if you're a congressman. So he's going to run for the Senate, and he's going to run against Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr. Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., is the leader of the Cold Warriors in the Republican Party. He is, you know, tied up with Truman. The two of them are partners in sending troops to Europe, fighting the Korean War, fighting the Soviets here, there, and everywhere. Taft has also decided that he is going to make sure that Eisenhower runs for the presidency in 1952 because Eisenhower is also a cold warrior. And if Eisenhower doesn't run, then maybe Taft, the isolationist, will get the nomination. So Kennedy, the Democrat whose father opposes Truman, is running against Lodge, the Republican, who supports everything that Truman does. It is one of the weirdest elections, elections that's ever happened. And again, the Kennedys are so damn smart, so politically savvy, that they figure out how to do this. Kennedy Jr., Jack Kennedy, says nothing about foreign policy. Nothing. He says, elect me. Lodges only cares about foreign policy. Elect me and I'll bring money to... Massachusetts. Meanwhile, his father contacts all the Taft people in Massachusetts, right, and says, elect my boy, because he's more of a Republican, you know. He's against the Cold War. He's against Truman. Elect my boy. 
He says it quietly, but it's heard. And to the surprise of pundits and experts everywhere, Jack Kennedy is elected. Uh, there's one more episode in this tug of war that's not quite a tug of war between father and son and between the conflicting ambitions. And Kennedy decides he's got a son in the Senate. He's going to shut up. He shuts up for about two years and decides it's time to speak out. He goes to Europe, right, to do his own fact-finding, comes back ready to make a splash again and discovers his son about to undergo major surgery for his back. Uh, he spends the next seven months to a year caring for his son in Palm Beach and decides from that moment on that caring for his son's health and watching after his son's political career is more important than speaking out and it will be his first priority. It's a winning strategy. In November of 1960, John Fitzgerald Kennedy is elected the first Irish Catholic president of the United States, posing as a cold warrior and smiling whenever he's asked about his father. His father does not appear in any photograph with him on any campaign stop. He gives no interviews. He retreats entirely. And so ends an important chapter in the life of Joseph P. Kennedy, isolationist, appeaser, insider, outsider, and the father of the President of the United States. I am happy to answer questions. Can you hear me? Is this mic on? Yes? Okay, but please come to this mic or this mic before asking your question. Tell us your name and please ask a question. Don't make a comment because there are a lot of people here who want to say uh, Seymour yes, Cohen, thank you for a great talk. Uh, I was fascinated by the Arthur Crock story and I was always amazed that I was in school when Kennedy ran for office and I voted for him, how they managed to suppress at least I was in school at the time, the father's anti-Semitism, his isolationism. Did they pay off anyone again? <laughs> did you find any evidence of this? No, the Nixon people, did, Nixon people unearthed everything, right? Nixon had a young Republican cadre of researchers, and they came up with everything, and they spread all through New York. Uh, voters received pamphlets in the mail about Joseph P. Kennedy, the anti-Semite. Joseph P. Kennedy wanted to speak out. He wanted to answer. Uh, everybody around him said, just be quiet. And in the end, the Jewish voters came out overwhelmingly for Kennedy because Jack Kennedy was not Joe Kennedy number one, right? And Jack Kennedy had been attacked as an Irish Catholic by Billy Graham, by Norman Vincent Peale, and the, the Jewish voters were outraged by this. Uh, when the votes were counted, 
uh, Kennedy said, thank God for the Jews. You know, the Jews, the Jews voted in higher numbers for his son uh, than Catholics did. Over here, please. Hi, uh, Rachel Horovitz. I, I understand you had access um, to papers and, and whatever uh, unpublished memoirs, and I was just curious. I love the book so much. I Thank think you. it's extraordinary. What were the biggest surprises that you found in this access? The, the biggest surprise, and, and I still haven't entirely figured out um, where I, I stand on this. The, the biggest surprises were the, the diaries, the letters uh, in which these, this anti-Semitism um, was displayed. Ted Kennedy, when we first began talking about this book, Ted said to me, my father wasn't an anti-Semite. I know him. Um, and I haven't yet figured out whether one should refer to Kennedy using that noun as anti-Semite, as Henry Ford was an anti-Semite, as Goebbels and Lady Astor and Hitler and Breckenridge Long were anti-Semites because they believed there was something in the blood, in the genetic makeup that made Jews devils, or, or whether to simply talk about his anti-Semitic utterances, his anti-Semitic beliefs, his situational anti-Semitism. But this, the stuff I found there just horrified me, horrified me. Um, and I still, you know, years later, haven't figured out entirely how to make sense of, of it all. Yes, sir. Uh, David Eisenbach, former student of yours. Good to see you again. Um, I wonder if you could talk to a little bit about the Kennedys and the Mafia and some of the myths and realities, particularly relating to the 1960 election and the allegations that the Kennedys used their Mafia connections to steal it. Yeah. Um, God, I found nothing. I looked so hard. Um, I would have loved to find it. But, it. but it's not there. It's not there. And political scientists who've looked really closely at this stuff have found out that in those areas of Chicago, for example, Kennedy didn't need Illinois, number one, to win the election. He won the election. If he had lost Illinois, he still would have won the election. Number two, Kennedy didn't need to interfere in Illinois, of all states, because Mayor Daley knew exactly what he was doing. And number three, in those districts where the mob, through the unions, was supposed to have sway, Local Democratic candidates outvoted Kennedy. So there is no evidence of mob connections, and there is lots of evidence that there was none. And first of, and then why, did Joe, why would Joe Kennedy have needed the mob? I mean, he's spent a lifetime building a political machine that stretches all over in every city. You know, it's all over the place. He's got more money than God. You know, he doesn't need the mob. The mob needs him. Yeah. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. My question, and thank you for a wonderful lecture, by the way. Two wonderful lectures. Thank you very much. Uh, did Joseph P. Kennedy, who had suffered a stroke by the time, I guess, Jack Kennedy was elected president, was he ever uh, told that Jack Kennedy had died? Yeah. It's horrible. In... Uh, he, he suffers the stroke in the 323rd day 
of his son's presidency. Oh, that's right. So he lives almost a year. Uh, and it's, it's a horrible story. The last chapter of the book was one of the most difficult to write. Um, and I'm told it's difficult to read as well. Because Jack, I mean, Joe is not only told about the death of Jack, but four years later, his son Ted almost dies in a plane crash. And a little while after that, Bobby is killed. Uh, no man should have to go through that. Yes, sir. Mike Groper. Um, the appointment of Robert Kennedy as Attorney General, the father's influence on that. Is there much evidence in other major appointments in the cabinet or in the administration that Joe suggested and Jack took him up on it? No. Jack, as a matter of fact, um, Jack said to his father, do you have any suggestions to make? And Jack believed that Joe would make suggestions. You know, and Jack said this to hundreds of other people. And he believed that Joe would have a suggestion for Secretary of the Treasury or, or Commerce. And Joe said, no. I want Bobby as Attorney General, period. And he didn't give up. He didn't give up. And I've, it's an extraordinary story. Um, but in the end, Jack didn't want his brother to be Attorney General. Bobby didn't want to be Attorney General. Uh, <laughs> But the patriarch wanted, and, and in the end, both Bobby and Jack agreed with their father that their father had done the right thing. Because in the Bay of Pigs, in the Bay of Pigs, and from the Bay of Pigs on, the only one who Jack could trust for advice, independent advice, was his brother. And they were sort of at a little bit, you know, Bobby stayed at justice until the Bay of Pigs, and then he became the major, his his brother's major advisor. Hi, thank you. Also, I'm Judy Catton. I'm also a docent here. Could you just comment briefly, father and son, about Joseph McCarthy? Yeah. Happy to. Um, not happy to. It's, it's, it's not a good story. Um, Joe McCarthy was, as difficult as this is to believe, was a fun guy to be around when he didn't drink too much. And then when he drank too much, he'd just pass out, so he didn't bother anybody. <laughs> he was a lot of fun, and he was one of the only Catholics, one of the only Catholics, and one of the most powerful Catholics, and a veteran in the Senate. He went out with Eunice and with Pat. Jack never liked him much. Jack thought he was a little bit of a, of a windbag. Uh, Joe liked him. Joe contributed to his campaigns. He was a house guest. Um, and when it was time to find Bobby a job, um, after he couldn't spend the rest of his life being his brother's campaign manager, Joe called up the patriarch. Joe Kennedy called up Joe McCarthy, and he said, I want Bobby to be your chief counsel. Uh, McCarthy said, I've already got one. Roy Cohn, but Bobby can work for him. Bobby took the job, and he lasted about six months. He never turned against McCarthy. He hated Roy Cohn, and he was convinced that Roy Cohn was the devil. Um, Joe 
Kennedy never ceased, and there's a, you know, it's part of a, of a chapter. He never stopped defending Joe McCarthy. He thought that people went after McCarthy because he was Catholic, because he didn't belong to the boys' club. He had terrible manners. He drank too much. He didn't dress the right way. He was bumptious and ugly. Uh, and Joe, and this is another example of that anti-Semitism, you know, always blame the Jew. And for the patriarch, the real villain um, was Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was the bad guy. And Bobby believed that also, that if it hadn't been for Roy Cohn, McCarthy might you know, have acted uh, in a more judicious manner. I don't believe that, <laughs> but he did. Please, do we have time for? Yeah, we have time for one more question, if you can come to the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I told Gene. <laughs> yeah. When when um, Gene wanted to come tonight and almost came but couldn't rearrange her schedule, she called me when the Buckley Review came out and she was furious. She said, the family is furious. I know you're happy, but the family is, is, is furious. Um, how could he say that my mother was this and this and this and this? And I said, those weren't my words. Um, so just keep a secret, all of you. Let's not <laughs> let this out, OK? So I said, Jean said, I'm going to write a letter to the Times. I said, great, write a letter to the Times. She said, I'm going to tell them that my mother was this and this and this. And I said, great. I said, you know, and I agree. Your mother, I never would have said she was humorless because she had a great sense of humor. Um, so Jean wrote a letter. And in the second paragraph of the letter said, uh, David Nassau agrees with me that, uh, you know, Buckley got it wrong. By the time. I saw this letter. It had already been sent to the Times, which would have made me look really stupid. Here, I'm complaining when this guy gives me this incredible review. Fortunately, the Times did not run that middle paragraph. But it got me in even more trouble, because the Times said to Gene, well, Buckley was well within his right to use these terms based on what Nassau said in the book. Um, and then, so Jean called, and we hollered at one another for a little while. And then two weeks later, she called, and in the most gracious, wonderful way, uh, congratulated me on the book and said that it was so remarkable and a fair piece of scholarship um, and was going to come tonight. So the story has a happy ending. And this is our ending. Thank you.